Welcome to the ADS Podcast. This is where we talk about all things audience development for the arts related. Join us for discussions about audience building tips, ideas, concepts, and philosophies with sometimes brought in special guests. And now, here's your latest podcast for you. This is Shoshana Fenitza from Audience Development Specialists, and I'm here for the next ADS podcast. We have a really cool guest for you today. I have Peter Alexander, who is a classical music critic in my area of Boulder, Colorado, and he is going to join us on the ADS podcast to talk about things such as what does the media want from us and what grabs their attention and what do they really want to write about? But before we welcome Peter to the show, I want to read a little short biography. Peter M. Alexander currently lives in Longmont, where he plays clarinet in two community bands and writes classical music stories for Boulder Weekly and for his blog, sharpsandflatirons.com. He holds a PhD in musicology from Indiana University, where he wrote his dissertation on the chamber music of Franz Danzi, sources, chronology, and style. He is a retired staff member and adjunct assistant professor of music at the University of Iowa, where he was director of media relations for all the arts organizations on campus for 23 years. He retired from the university in 2009 and moved to Longmont soon after. He has also worked as a music critic and church choir director. So let's welcome Peter to the ADS podcast. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Shoshana. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you're here. And I want to tell our audiences that this is the first time I'm actually live in person with somebody, not live to you, but live to me. I usually talk with people all across the country, but now I'm in my hometown, Longmont, Colorado, at the Longmont Library with Peter right here with me. So today... I'm excited to have Peter here because we're going to be talking about not only from our side how to get more publicity, what do does the media actually want from us in order for them to write more about the arts, but also a perspective on what the media actually wants to write about. And um, as I mentioned in the biography, Peter Alexander is one of our classical music critics in our area and works for the Boulder Weekly as well as his Sharps and Flatirons blog that he helps us bring awareness to classical music in our area. We're very appreciative of that. So my main question here that I that I want to start with today is what gets your attention? That's an interesting question. Um, my background uh, is, is, as you know, is in musicology. And so um, I'm curious about all kinds of music. One group that, of course, is, is notorious for their sort of groundbreaking work is Kronos Quartet. And I've been fortunate enough to get to know them a little bit over the years, attending their performances. And I once told them, um, you know, I don't like all of your music. Some of your music I hate, mm. but I would rather come to hear one of your performances than just a routine performance of music that I already know and have heard all my life. Oh, so you're a new music advocate. Well, uh, <sighs> And but new to me can can be you know can be medieval music can be Renaissance music can be Baroque music it just depends um, there's an awful lot of unexplored music out there um, and so that's one of the things that will get my attention is if it's something I haven't um, heard before I will be more likely to be interested in that um, I try to cover world premieres for example talking about new music. Because, you know, composers face um, a lot of obstacles in getting their music known and getting a public for it. And I think it's, it's important for those of us that are in, in the media trying to cover the news in, in this field to recognize when new music is being performed, being premiered. Right. Um, and I don't always review it, but sometimes I do. And I'm more likely to review something with, with the world premiere again, as opposed to, you know, performance of music that everybody's heard dozens of times. Nobody needs to hear what I think about a Beethoven symphony. Right, right. <laughs> so, well, we're lucky to have you in the field to help us with that because you're right, it is a big challenge to get new music covered. And um, 
So we're appreciative of that. But so new music would get your attention, which I'm thankful of. What else in terms of presentation style when we when we submit a press release, what actually would say, oh my gosh, this is this is amazing to cover? Some kind of creativity in terms of programming. Um, I'm, I'm not necessarily um, bowled over by uh, having a, a theme for a concert. That is, everybody's doing that. Now. Right. <laughs> um, there was a time when you just, you know, mix and match. But now that people like to have a theme, they give titles to programs as well as to seasons, um, which some of that is, is a kind of gimmicky, mm-hmm. but uh, it also can help if it's done thoughtfully. Right. Um, in, in terms of the audience knowing what to what to expect and how to listen. I always ask people when I interview them for preview articles, what do you want the audience to think about or to focus on or to listen for? What would you tell them? Imagine yourself as a conductor or a performer standing in the lobby and someone you know slightly comes by and says, ah, so good to see you. I want to tell me what, what should I expect tonight? What should I what should I be listening for? What am I going to hear? Interesting. Um, and people are often taken aback by that question. And I would say if you haven't thought about that, mm-hmm. you should. Definitely. <laughs> um, Definitely. But um, that kind of thing. Uh, and when, when I'm writing news releases. Um, I get a lot of publicity materials from, from artists. Mm-hmm. They all, most of them, they come from, from a management company. Okay. Uh, and they all look exactly the same. And they are all dreadfully dull. Okay, tell us about <laughs> that. What, what makes it so dull? Um, artist X is one of the most in-demand young artists <laughs> on his or her instrument um, um, and has performed with um, such artists as or such conductors as, or has led such um, orchestras as, which is another another pet peeve of mine. <laughs> no, nobody's going to pay attention to this, but right, right. There, there are no such orchestras as. There are only orchestras including. You know, so, you know, he says, performed with conductors um, such as, you know, uh, Simon Rattle. Well, there is no conductor such as. There is Simon <laughs> there is Rattle, and then there are all these other conductors. What they should say is performed with, including. But but every one of those bios goes through this sort of laundry list of whom they perform with, and it's always very impressive. It will list what competitions they've been finalists in or have won or whatever, if they have. And... and in that respect, they all look the same. Right. And you have no sense of who this person is. Right, right. I've been and telling my audience this for a long I, time. I, I would love to know where where they uh, where they grew up, what their mm-hmm. early experiences in music were, what their what their how music is integrated into a, a full life, mm-hmm. because they are more than just what's in you know the resume. Um, I'll give you an example. Boulder Monic recently premiered a piece by a composer from Boulder, okay. uh, a woman named Kristen Custer, who teaches now at, at the University of Michigan. She grew up in Boulder, and in interviews with her, she has told me two really great stories that I am certain are not in her bio, okay. but, but really should be. The first one is that when she was a, a little girl living in Boulder, she was taking piano lessons, and at one point, getting kind of bored, she took some of the pieces that she was playing, and she cut it up and oh. put the put the measures in a different order. Oh my gosh! Now there's your future composer, right? Right, there. right. Uh, the other one is that she wrote a piece that is a piece that they just performed called Dune Acres" about a place where she used to go uh, on the shores of Lake Michigan with her with her grandparents lived when she was a little girl growing up. Um, and she talked about how she would sit there and sing to herself, and this was sort of the beginning of her making her own tunes. And then she would go um, in the lake, because that's what they did every day when the weather was nice. The kids would go out in the lake. They'd go in the lake, and she would go underwater and hum to herself, and she just loved the sound of that. <laughs> well, here's another way, you know, entry into her, her experience of music as a young age that continues to be a part of her um, experience as a composer. Mm-hmm. Now, those are the kinds of things that I love to read about people. Something that makes them stand out 
not in terms of accomplishment, because everybody's got accomplishments. Right. Know, they've all studied with important people. They've all performed here, there, and with the various chamber groups, you know. Um, but as an as a individual, as a human mm-hmm. being, that's what I'm always looking at. Um, something I like to try to get to is is what what their life is really like as a as a um, as a performer. We see them on stage, mm-hmm. you know, but what what is their life like in in terms of getting to the performance? And I don't mean getting from the hotel there in a, in a taxi cab. I mean, you know, from when they're studying to get to the point where they're performing with the group. And what is their daily life as a professional really like? I, I did an article recently um, about um, concert masters. Mm-hmm. We had here in Boulder again um, as, as a guest uh, in connection with the Bernstein 100th anniversary. We had Glenn Dicterow, who was a concert master of the New York Philharmonic for many, many years. Um, he came in after Bernstein had left, but he Bernstein came back as a guest conductor over and over again. He worked with Bernstein a great deal. Um, so I, I used that as an opportunity, and I talked to him and other concert masters in the area and asked them, what is it you do? Because what people see, everybody's on stage, and then this guy walks out, right. you know, gestures grandly at the oboe <laughs> player, who <laughs> every time plays yeah. the same note. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Um, well, and uh, orchestras, I mean, they expect it to be down if uh, down to the to the you know exact uh, number of, of uh, vibrations. If most orchestras, I think, around here tune to not a four forty, but a four forty one. Yes, they go. And that's sharper. and that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. That that one does make a difference. <laughs> but um, that's what people see, and then he or she will play a solo. And there's a solo written for the concert ministry in the, in the orchestral piece. But what else do they do? Well, one of the things they do is they make sure you see all those bows going up and down together. That doesn't happen by chance. Right. They do the bowing. They, they do. Yeah. They, they will start sometimes a year or more in advance wow. with the music, working through the music, playing through everything, marking parts. And, you know, they send it out to the other section leaders in the orchestra and so forth. This, this takes a tremendous amount of time mm-hmm. uh, to do all of that. Uh, one thing that um, Chaz Weatherby, who is uh, concertmaster of Boulder Philharmonic, told me that I had not known was that when they have uh, violin soloists coming, he's expected to be available should that person cancel at the last minute. Mm. Now, if it's a fairly obscure or um, contemporary concerto, maybe not. But if it's standard, it's been by Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, probably even Barber, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he said he'll look at that and have it, uh, you know, so that he could do it on short notice. Wow. If he asked to. Well, again, something else, all this goes on behind the scenes. He comes out there and you've got, you know, famous violinist XYZ going to play the Barber Concerto. Well, he's also there having prepared it to be ready in case. And he said that has happened to him, not in Boulder, but in, in other orchestras mm-hmm. where he's been concertmaster. That has happened. So um, that kind of thing that gives you insight into sort of what I think of as the human reality of right. life in classical music interests me much more than, than um, a lot of the other stuff that we see. In, in, uh, so I, w- I wish... Um, they're not going to listen to me, but I wish the management <laughs> companies would, would put something... A little bit more personal, right? In the in the bios to, to make this person kind of come alive, right? I keep putting it out there that the stories are extremely important. It's not where they went to school, but how they they got there in the first place. So I agree with you, and just anything, even if it's like a, a fun little story, like I keep having something pop in my head, like you trained your dog to whistle Beethoven five. That's going to get a lot of, <laughs> that's going to get a lot of interest compared to just, I went to school here, there and right. everywhere. So <laughs> well, people I, will remember that too. I, I will say I, I do check if, if it's in there where they grew up and where they went to school mm-hmm. because, you know, over 
years in in this business, you get to know a lot of people, and so you can say, hey, did they go to the same school I went to? Mm-hmm. Did they go to a school where I know somebody that's teaching? Um, you know, right. just sort of as a point of contact. Um, right. You know, because if we if we know the same people, then we have a way of getting a conversation going. Sometimes. Exactly, it makes it easier for you and for them to yeah. have the conversation. Uh, another thing that that I would say, as long as we're talking about this, mm-hmm. is when it comes to publicity materials, which we're talking about a little bit, people, because it used to be that for photos, everybody had, you know, eight by 10 black and white glossy headshots. And I, I think those, again, are just so boring. Right, right. <laughs> and they start looking the same, and they they have usually some type of kind of a scowl on their face. They're not smiling half the time for classical well, musicians. <laughs> some kind of expression that shows how serious. Oh, they yes, are. very like, serious. You know, they're they're professional. you know, they, they can't pose with a, with a violin or a cello or a flute, you know, so, <laughs> so they have a baton. And I never knew that there were so many ways to hold a baton <laughs> when you were having your picture taken until I started looking at conductors' publicity uh, <laughs> <laughs> shots. But something that's in terms of where it is, how it's done, and, and fortunately more groups are doing this now. Um, outside, mm-hmm. um, sometimes you'll see them not on stage, all posing seriously, but... Um, sitting out in the audience in a, in a hall, you know, and, and sort of more casual. Those are much more eye-catching because what you want that photo to do, both you, the artist, and you, meaning me, the person who's, you know, behind the publication, the editors of the publication, and so forth, what you want the photo to do is to catch people's eye. Right, exactly. It needs that needs to tell a story too. So it's not just right. so, okay, this is just a person here, but this is an amazing person who likes blah blah blah. Well, a black and white, serious, you know, you've got your your uh, formal wear and so forth. It's it's intimidating. Right. Whereas you've got people um, you know, sitting casually on a park bench in tattered jeans and a sweater, well that looks like somebody that you can understand. Right, right. Someone you can talk to or somebody you would want to spend time with, somebody that's interesting. Yeah, I used to um, definitely put out there that I was tired of the old orange looking orchestra photos that I say, because it it seemed like they all took the same stage photo. They all looked this orangey brown type of color to them. And you could not tell one orchestra from another. And it wasn't until like Dudamel came on the scene that we started seeing some really live action shots of not only him, but of the orchestra itself in order to differentiate themselves from every other orchestra out there. So I totally agree. It's something I've been putting out there myself, and it's good to hear from you saying that this is something that you want, some you know, live action shot, something that's a little more interesting than just the same old, same old. Yes, yes, and that's something, too, when you say live action shot. Um, and uh, I just wrote a story about uh, production coming up this weekend as we are speaking at the University of Colorado of Tchaikovsky's opera, Eugene Onegin. Okay. Um, and with with operas, so often it's it's difficult to do. You, you have to get the photos taken in advance, and so they are staged, mm-hmm. and they just look posed. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas when you have shots that are taken in a, in a performance or even in a rehearsal, um, there's so much more intensity Right. In, the, in the photo and in the expressions of the people. Uh, th- those are the photos that I that I like to have. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of issues and problems with that. Um, I mean, I've done publicity for years for opera uh, companies and universities. Um, and designers don't like to have pictures taken before their design is completely finished and all the parts are in place on stage. So even early dress rehearsals, they're right. still working on costumes, but they, they don't want their work misrepresented. Um, so, I mean, that's one of many, many issues. And then, so you're going to come into the final dress rehearsal and, you know, well, it's too late now to get the photo out right. to get people to buy tickets because you know, it'll take a couple of days and maybe the run is almost over. But, yeah. Right. So you understand the pain that we go through. And yeah. it's always even getting the musicians at, of an orchestra to have a dress rehearsal where they're actually dressed Oh. concert dress 
in order to get those action shots ahead of time is like pulling teeth. They don't really like to do that. Well, and, yeah, and, and there's I always and it's funny because there's always a couple musicians that forget and you have to try to pose them somewhere in the middle so they don't show up that they don't well, have their concert dress on. But it, it's a another challenge. time we, we will talk about <laughs> how how much musicians don't like what they have to wear sometimes. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Looking like a penguin sometimes all the time yeah. is not. Well, not if, if you ever look at see orchestra players after um, after a concert, if there's like a reception or something like that, first thing you'll notice is all the string players, their ties are right. on the side because <laughs> they had all the violin and violists at least. You know? Right, right. And, and some of the others, in order to breathe, you know, you, you can't have it tight. Right. You know, um, so you have to, you have to. I mean, I've gone through this, finding a shirt that look okay, but isn't so tight that I have trouble breathing. I, since I play clarinet, um, that's that's always an issue. Um, that's the topic for a while. <laughs> we'll save that for another time then. Yes, yes. But yeah, about photos, one thing that I would say is uh, get good photos, have them easily available. Mm -hmm. uh, people, for some reason... Um, and I suppose it's because of how much it costs and copyright issues and so forth. Sometimes you have to have a password, sometimes it's difficult to get to the, to the photos. But I always think, whose interest does that serve? Because you right. want people to use that photo. If you've paid you know, some photographer, most people here are not using Christian Steiner, but you know, some people do. <laughs> um, if you've paid a professional photographer for that photo, you want people to use it. You want it to be seen. Right. Um, so make it accessible. High-resolution photos for publications. Mm -hmm. um, they, I, I can use you know, a photo of 50K, 75K sometimes on, on the web or my blog, but a, a publication can't. They just can't get the kind of resolution they need to print. So they, you need high-resolution photos, um, for, uh, and they should be available, and they should be changed often. Yeah, we talked about this before. This is kind of funny because sometimes I'm submitting photos that these are like 10 years old or more of right. the artist or the conductor or composer even. And so <laughs> Peter like sent me an email back going, wow, this looks like it's been, you know, from 10 years ago and she needs to update her photos. <laughs> and I just laugh because I, I know what it's like just getting the actual current headshot is, is a problem sometimes. For me, it's it's not an issue, and sometimes it is with, with artists, a sort of vanity thing, oh, I don't want to show how old I look. I look so much better 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> but but that's not the real issue for me because I'm working so much with the same organizations over and over again. I just, I don't want the same photo. Oh, anymore. that's a good point, too. That's yeah, a very good point. Yeah, I don't, you, you can go through all the pictures that were taken when you were in high school if you want, as long as they keep changing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of funny because I know from an audience perspective, they kind of look at the photo and go, uh, that doesn't look like the person up on the stage. It doesn't look like them at all. What's going on? So, I mean, sometimes that isn't, it is an issue. And it, I, I think it would be preferable to have something yeah. that's current right. for right. so many reasons. Yeah, many reasons. So, yeah, that, that is a good point. So I want to go into then, because we talked about what gets your attention, what are the things you, you would like to see. So what would be, like, say we're putting together a media kit for you. What would be, let's start with a top five list of what you want from us in order to be organized on your end. Well, I think that the, you say, well, what does the media want? What does, it depends partly on the medium. As, as to what they want. But of course, the most important thing, if you've got a performance coming up, is um, complete and accurate information, uh, all in easily accessible. Okay. I, I can't tell you how many organizations here, I go on the web, I'm going to write about a, a performance, and I see a list of performances, and it gives you the dates. Okay. It doesn't give you the time. <laughs> oh, no. That's somewhere else. Oh, no. I mean, it is on the webpage. Sometimes you have to go to the purchase ticket thing uh -huh. to get, okay, there's three performances, and it says one of them is in Denver, one of them is in Boulder, one of them is in Longmont. But it doesn't say where in each of those. Sometimes it does. I mean, but every any listing of events should, in one place, right up front, 
Mm -hmm. The first page you come to have time, date, place. And I say it in that order because if you're writing anything for newspapers, that's the order they want it. Right. That's standard style. Time, date, place. Um, so, you know, 7.30 p.m., Saturday, whatever date, in Mackey Auditorium on the University of Colorado campus. Um, so are you finding that people are sending press releases and they, they're not filling in all of those details? It's not necessary. Sometimes you have to kind of hunt for it. I mean, oh. they're, very, they're, they're there. Interesting. But, but this should be the first thing you tell people. Okay. And, and certainly web pages. I mean, that just drives me crazy. <laughs> when, I, when I have to hunt through three or four pages to find all of the information. Interesting. Um, okay. So that's that's um, that's one of the first things. But you know, I want I I want the photos that we talked about uh, in a press kit. I want the photos. I want you know you. A lot of people have a long bio and a short bio, mm -hmm. which is which is great. I mean, I I, th I think that makes sense. But it should be a, again something you can relate to a little bit more. It should not just be a list of accomplishments. Um, and. My way of going about this, if I were writing this, I would write a, a sort of a short narrative about this person. It tells you something about them as a person as well as a musician. And then, and then below that, let's say two paragraphs, three paragraphs. Then below that, say, um, this person has performed with lists of, you know, orchestras and conductors or chamber ensembles. Uh, this person uh, has won the following competitions or has had the following competition um, results list those mm -hmm. but putting all of that in just prose form and calling that a biography is is um you know that's that's not enough to me and that's you know it's, it's it's again it's going to be boring to read right and, and no no one I, I can't imagine anyone at a serious newspaper with a real person devoted to covering the arts is going to take that prose that says so-and-so is one of the most in-demand young artists having performed with, and then a list of 12 orchestras. And <laughs> Nobody's going to take that and put that in a, in a story because you'll lose the reader within, you know, right. 10 seconds. Right. Then what What I need, I, I always want to talk to the people when I can, okay. of course. So um, I need some kind of contact information, whether it's management or the presenting organization or someone who can can help me in terms of getting in contact with people i want someone to, to come to me and say okay uh we'd love you to write about this what can we do to help you okay those are the most wonderful words in the world what can we do to help you? Um, and um who can facilitate uh setting up um interviews getting information whatever whatever is, is needed depending upon upon the situation and it's, it's always wonderful to have within, either within the bio, I mean, I may pull it out like the, the um, some of the things about uh, Kristen Custer that I mentioned might be useful, but, but a way of engaging the reader at the beginning of the story, what, what journalists call the lead. Okay. Um, that, that very first sentence. If I thought ahead, I would have brought along a couple of examples of some that, that I've written uh, recently, but the, the, uh, the Story about the the opera, for example, the Eugene Onegin. I started by saying that the Eklund Opera Company at University of Colorado was doing something they'd never done before. Mm -hmm. Now that that is more interesting than saying, you know, they're they're performing this very um, beloved Russian opera and just just stating that as a fact. And so what they're doing that they've never done before is performing an opera in Russian with. English titles um, and performing in Russian is it's uh, I'm told that it's not easy I've never tried <laughs> I've never tried either it's my heritage but I certainly don't know how to do that so. <laughs> and, and, and they, I mean in this case they brought in they brought in experts from outside to teach diction and, and work with them and so forth and um, that that is part of the story and that is in fact Getting back to my question, what do you want people to know when they come in? That's what, part of what you want them to know. Right, right. That it's, it's unusual for a university opera company to perform in Russian, and they have had to put a lot of effort into being able to do that. Right. That's part of what these students have had to do. Right. So it sounds like the, the main thing we're getting out of this is um, 
we need a hook. We need that hook that is really going to grab not only audience, but also grab the media to be like, I could use this. This is something that, that his audience, which is all the people reading the newspaper is going to, to get excited about and get interested in. And it makes his life easier. It sounds like too. Word, word of warning. Don't, decide in advance what my hook is going to be <laughs> because you know it's, it's going to be my story and I have right. to write it in in my way and I will figure out what hook will really capture my attention right. uh, as something that I can use to, to, to write right so so many of my stories actually once I get the hook um, before I sit down to write a story I've done an interview I've transcribed the interview I've got you know this information up there I may spend Portions of a of a day or more mm-hmm. going around in my head. You know, mm-hmm. what's what's how am I going to get into this? How am I going to what's my right. lead going to be? How right. am I going to start this story? Once I get that, the rest of the writing usually goes fairly easily. Mm-hmm. If if I've had a good interview with someone, I know what their focus is on, what their interest is, how they feel about the piece, and, and that's another thing I would suggest. Uh, if you're going to be interviewed for for something like this. Give some thought to the pieces you're playing. Why these pieces? Why you want to do them? What they mean to you? Um, you should not be taken aback if I say to you, well, why, why are you doing Beethoven's Fourth Symphony this time for this program? Well, I, I don't know. It seemed like a nice piece. You know, you, <laughs> you have something more to say about it than that. Right. So, so I... Think about it a little bit before you, and have answers to those kinds of questions. What would you tell the audience? Mm -hmm. What would you tell the audience? Because that's what I'm doing. I'm taking your words and presenting it to your potential audience. So think about not what you want to say to me. And I often tell people, you know, I'm I'm going to ask you questions that I know the answer to, because I want you to tell that to the reader. Right. I don't want to tell it to the reader. I want you to tell it to. And this is something else that I always tell people when they ask me about how to write a news release. I always tell them, you can't write hype, but you can quote hype. Oh, can you expand on that? Well, what, do you, what exactly? I can't say as a fact that Michael Butterman at the uh, Boulder Philharmonic is performing the greatest orchestral works of all time. <laughs> But I can quote him saying, I think this is one of the greatest. Right, right. I think that is a mistake in my industry. Sometimes we're we're just trying to do the great marketing spiral. I can't say this is this is the greatest young pianist to come along since um, Stratoslav Richter, you know, exploded on the scene in the 1950s. I can't say that. That's a great point. That's a great point. If someone else says that, I can quote them. I love that. That is that is a gold because I have seen press releases where the marketing person goes, it's going to be an amazing event right. instead of somebody quoting, I think this will be an amazing event because of blah, blah, blah. So right. I, I, I get that difference very yeah. clearly. And Don't I love write it. hype, quote I, hype. I love that. Don't write hype. <laughs> Quote hype. I love it. We need to like have that like ingrained in our brain. That's great. I love it. Uh, I'll make up little cards and say Oh, that's perfect. I love that. You <laughs> should put that on the, right. I'll put that on the website as one of the quotes. That, that goes right along with my, with my other um, quote that I always refer to in, in terms of how, of how you write a story. Now, my, my stories um, for Boulder Weekly is supposed to be 800 words. Okay. Right for the weekly. Okay. I can I can with absolute consistency turn out with with thought and care as I go through the process turn out 840 words. Oh, no. oh, no. oh gosh. <laughs> but it's it's not hard to cut. It it's really not. Um, and I've been known to say like I come up with 825 words. I can end up cutting that down and adding something that I suddenly realized I had forgotten and ending up with 785 words. So what what types of things do you usually cut? Because I'm actually... Adverbs. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. And I I take that directly from um, Stephen King's book on writing where he says, 
Avoid adverbs. <laughs> Avoid adverbs. They're really, really, really not very helpful. Oh, that type of adverb, really. <laughs> and and yeah. uh, and people throw in. I've almost memorized, depending on who it is, people I interview all the time, what their favorite uh, intensifier is. Mm-hmm. What What are um, some of the top? Uh, ones? I mean, really. Um, I think I think that such and such is true. No, just say it's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You can cut that out. So all those kinds of things can be cut out, and 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 the quote that I refer to all the time was by uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the uh, uh, author who wrote *The Little Prince*. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he said, uh, at one time I can say this in French. I don't remember it anymore. But he said, "Perfection is achieved not when there's nothing left to add, but when there's nothing left to take away." Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> and so that's how I approach the editing process. When, oh, when, I, when I sit there with my 840 words and I've got to get it down to 790. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, I really, and that's, I mean, any writer should, should know that. Right. So that's something to think about when we're actually doing our releases, too. Yeah. When there's nothing left to take away. Right. Wow. That's that's a gold one too. <laughs> so um, we got that we we need to be organized on our website. We need all the information. We need interesting pictures, interesting stories, um, something unique to write about, something that'll get the the public interested. Why are we doing this piece? Is there anything else you want to add to this list? It's been a great list. Um. Well, one thing I think people need to understand, and, and um, this is not adding to that list, but it's sort of providing the environment in which that list uh, is going to be um, useful. Everyone will have noticed newspapers are uh, changing, getting smaller, cutting mm-hmm. staff, uh, yeah. much less space. So that is a challenge to everyone. And every time someone has been cut or has had their space reduced or whatever, editors have always said exactly the same thing, which is, we are not abandoning our commitment to coverage of, but there's going to be less, and this is true at the New York Times as well as anywhere else. Right, it's um, happening all over. The, the, when I first started working, um, doing media relations at the University of Iowa, we had people come in and visit not infrequently from New York and elsewhere, and then at a certain point, I got to know the dance critic there, and she said to me, a woman named Anna Kisselgoff, who was, uh, became a good friend, said to me, we just can't travel anymore. There's no money for it. Mm. Um, it's yeah. it, very, very limited travel. And, you know, you will we, we noticed that the top editors could maybe still go to the Edinburgh Festival, for example. Right. That would be lovely. <laughs> Love to but, go there. But, but things around the country, much, much less than, than used to be the case. Um, right. And, right. and that's, that's really evident everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that um, obviously should be noticeable to everybody is how uh, the Internet has, has affected all this and changed that. Um, I go down, because it's an easy drive for me, I go down every summer to the Santa Fe, the Santa Fe Opera. And um, I don't know how this has changed because I've not been going as a a member of the media for a long time. But I would say that at least two-thirds of the people that I meet there are from online-only publications. Mm. I'm sure that 20 years ago you would have had... I mean, I can think of a couple of newspapers that send people. Um, The Wall Street Journal does uh, every year. Heidi Wilson is there every year from the the, uh, Wall Street Journal. But... I have not met anyone from New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, you know, some of these other big newspapers. I I think someone from the New York Times is sometimes there, maybe maybe every year, I don't know. But anyway, the people that you meet there and that they are, they have a dinner for the press, you you get comp tickets and so forth, and I meet some of these people. I would say two-thirds of them are online-only publications. Wow, so it's it's really changing now. It's and really that's changing. Yeah, and that's one thing I, I would say to anyone who is looking to work with the media, reach out to, be as accommodating as you possibly can to people who are doing blogs like mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a huge number of followers, but how many 
people do you think actually read entire stories in the arts section of your daily newspaper? Right. You know, it, it may not be a larger number than the uh, nearly 400 followers that, that I have on my blog. Well, plus it's also a very targeted audience. Right, right. Very you're, targeted. You're reaching the people that you really, really want to reach by that. And, and everybody exactly. thinks if it's not in a newspaper, I have had a local in Colorado, not, not in Boulder, but in Colorado, institution tell me that they would not um, allow, give me comp tickets as a critic unless my review was going to appear in print. No kidding. I, I'm going to just tell my audience, like I've said That's before, backwards. it is backwards because of the fact that it's a targeted audience. It's the exact people that you want to be coming to your concert for one thing. Well, I think I know why that happened. I think that they had a financial crunch and they probably brought in somebody who was a bean counter. Mm. And you look and said, mm. you're giving away too many tickets. Well, my, my but, philosophy is you should always give away at least like 10, at the most, 15% of your tickets somehow. Part of it should be the press. Part of it should be sponsors. Part of it should be uh, out of goodwill, like if there's a charity organization that makes sense to give to. So, yeah, it, it actually helps with audience development to do this. It's kind of the goodwill and the good karma that comes it, back from this. But definitely the press should be invited, and don't be stingy about that. And, and, and treated well. I can tell you, um, one reason I keep going back to Santa Fe is that they treat the press there better than anybody else I have ever Oh, what, what do they do? Do they give you a fruit basket? Or? Well, they, <laughs> they, they, well, they have a dinner. They have a press dinner. No kidding. And it is. No kidding. That's and, wonderful. And that's, that's wow. such a fabulous location. I mean, the facility they've got there, and they've got this uh, big sort of patio area that's covered uh, with the view of the mountains. And it's oh, just wow. in, in early August in, in Santa Fe, that's just absolutely spectacular. Um, so very few people can match that. Right, right. Um, but, but. Do things for them that a lot of the things you can do don't really cost you money. I mean, the dinner obviously does. And, right, right. and by the way, it's it's not rubber chicken. Okay. They 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 have really really first rate food. They have an open bar. They have wine available with the dinner and so forth. But on the other hand, you know this this is an institution that has a multi multi million dollar budget, and they are in the uh, not in the red. They're they're you know. So what, what kind of things could a smaller organization do to make you feel more welcome? Well, certainly stay in touch with you. Uh, know when you're coming. Um, have any material for you that they can give you when, when you come. Uh, one little thing, I grew up in Central City Opera, and um, you know they, they have a little lounge there for their contributors. Mm. It doesn't cost them anything to give me a ticket to go in there, you know. And it makes you feel like you're important to them, and that the, the press representatives will meet you sometimes ahead of time if they can. Um, sometimes up there they have they'll have a packet for me, which I mean, which you should always have. The press mm. people, some kind of a packet that will come. And um, if I was just coming up for the, for the evening, they would have it on my seat because they know where I'm sitting. On my seat when I come in and sit down, here's my little press packet. Things like that just make you feel like you're welcome. <laughs> okay. That, that, I'm learning something here because this is something that I admit I, I need to do better at. So, yeah, good, good um, thing. But, um, yeah, I got reaching out to um, online publications. And the, the, the difference there is, of course, that um, they're not constrained by some of the things that will constrain publications. That's true. There's a little I mean, more flexibility. If, if, if I come up with 840 words for the weekly, I've got to cut out, you know, 41 of them. <laughs> right, right. But if I come up with 840 words for my blog, I can use all of them if I want to. I may go back and, and, you know, I always do go back and trim through to see what I've, you know, can take out. Right. Aiming for perfection. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but it but, sounds like you can have a more complete story then, too. But so, sometimes you can include things uh, online. Sometimes, on the other hand, I, you have so many things going on, you're going to do it quickly. And maybe the one online is not 800 words. Maybe it's only 550 words. Right. And it's not because it's not worth knowing more about it. It's just that you only had so much time. Right. Um, and, of course, that's we're fortunate here in Boulder that I'm too busy. <laughs> right. We kind of, we have 
symphonies and operas coming out of our ears, even in our small area. <laughs> How many five, do you count? Yeah. Five orchestras during five. the year. That doesn't count the Colorado Music Festival. Isn't that crazy? It really is. Um, For a populace of maybe max 225, 250 with the students here. So it, it, it's just, wow. The greater Boulder area, probably something like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so another it's, topic we'll get into sometime is why um, Longmont is about to become a big art center, and we're going to start drawing people from Boulder. But I know it. I'm, <laughs> now that I live here in Longmont, I'm getting the the skinny on this. It's very exciting. We're actually um, very close to getting our own performing arts center, and that would be so well, amazing. One of, one of the we're reasons. On it. One of the reasons that uh, are one piece of evidence that that is a good idea, and this is the right time for it, is that over the last. I don't know, three or four years as I've been here, more and more groups from Boulder are adding a performance in Longmont. That's true. We just digital. we just did that Pro Musica just had a performance at the Stuart Auditorium. Seicento is at a performance right, at, at right. the Stuart Auditorium coming right. up. That's at the Longmont Museum. So it's a kind of a neat little cultural center there and um it sounded a, wonderful too it's, it's, i was it's a, it's a like small small yeah. hall about 250 people is all um, i like it's, it it's intimate and but it's, it's attractive it's it's really a beautiful little hall yeah they did a, a great job on it we we definitely enjoyed ourselves there but sure. anyway um of course those five orchestras draw more than just boulder itself true but um that's that's something that I think is is uh, where the center of gravity is is, is going to shift. Um, Interesting. <laughs> and, and, and it does, and and you know, this again is something that that um, people who are on the other side from where I am, the presenters, the artists, the organizations, that's something they need to stay very very sensitive to. Where are people? Um, where, where is the population shifting to, and where is the more affluent population shifting? It is something that we always have to keep keep um, it on the, the back the, of our minds. Definitely. The, the, I just had this conversation with uh, Amanda Balastrieri, who is conductor of Seicento. Right. The, the program that they are doing, that they are also doing in the in the um, Stewart Auditorium, is called "In Your Court: uh, A Royal Tour of Europe" or something like that. And it's all music from European courts. And what it's really all about is the relationship between the people that have the money and the people who produce the art. And uh, there are many, many aspects of that relationship that are covered, but as we talked about, it, art has always depended upon patronage, people who have money paying to have paintings made, paying to have um, music written, right. um, and of course, at yeah. the top end, the, the, the great courts of Europe having things, even as extravagant as opera produced which becomes a sort of a form of, of uh, prestige. But knowing where that money can come from is such a critical aspect of, of that job. And you cannot be too analytical and too hard-nosed about your analysis uh, about that. And, I, and I've, seen, I've seen failures because of people not being analytical enough. And that's some of the money Relatively affluent people are moving into Longmont. That's that's part of what's going on here because Boulder is so expensive. But we also have to be careful because that's been when it comes to getting grants. They want to see that you have a diverse audience. They want to make sure that the underserved are actually part of that audience too. Right. So it, it, right. it's a tricky balance that that we're we're dealing with in this well, day and age for sure. That's. That's a whole other topic. Right. And, you know, there, there are special aspects to that here in Longmont, or there are groups who are, who are really meeting those needs. Well, I'm going to dive into a topic. It's actually not on the list, but it's something that, that just uh -huh. popped in my mind based off of this conversation, is the fact that sometimes it seems like we have to pay to play or get exposure. Are you finding, and maybe this is a secret you can't tell us, but are, if you're find, are you finding that if... If an organization actually does take out ads in the newspaper, that it's easier for you to get permission to do a story on them. Um, and feel free to say you can't answer. I understand. No, I, I can't answer that. And okay. I, 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 have, I, have, I have an answer that I've had for a long time on that because that topic was was relevant even when I was at the University of Iowa 
many years ago. So in my case with, with Boulder Weekly, they pretty much are prepared to write about the things that they and I together agree are the important events. Okay. And we try, uh, I and the editors meet together, and we try to cover all of the organizations. We can't cover every performance by any organization. We try to make sure that everybody gets coverage during during a given year, that the coverage is, is more or less um, fair in its distribution, which will be partly on the basis of the size of audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you will get more stories about a large orchestra that gives six performances and sells, let's say, 1,800 tickets to each one mm-hmm. than an organization that gives two performances and sells 400. That organization, small organization, will still get one every year, we hope. And they'll get some attention every year, but they won't get the same number Stories as the, as the bigger organization that, that draws the bigger audience and has the, you know. That's interesting. And it, it kind of makes me feel sad for the smaller organization because they kind of need the publicity in order to get more tickets in that's order to I be started, in that. That's why I started category. my blog. Okay, okay. It was because with the limitations of a weekly newspaper, mm-hmm. okay, it's weekly, so, and I'm not going to be in there every week. So two or three at the most stories a month out of all the things that happen. Right. And, and we have a lot and that's going on in our area. There, there are days that I sit in my office all day long and say to myself, why did I ever say I was going to start my own blog <laughs> oh, no. when I've got, you know, a deadline for a story at the, at the weekly on Friday and I've got three other events that I have to get on the blog in the same week. That's... So, so get back to the original question. In the context of the weekly... They're happy to cover what they and I agree is, is worth covering. Okay. But here's, here is the sort of um, crux of it, it seems to me. If, well, in any, any newspaper I've been around, there is no direct connection between uh, editorial and advertising. There's nobody in advertising who calls up editorial and says, okay, so-and-so just placed a big ad, so now you're going to write about them. What does happen and what I've known marketing people to say to uh, newspapers is if your editorial position is that our events are not worth covering, why should we, in other words, your audience isn't interested in them, why should we advertise in your paper? Right, right, right. See, that's, that's, that's the other way, going in the other, other direction. Exactly. If, if the medium decides the people interested in that event are not part of their audience. Then what's why, why should why should those people advertise in that in that publication? Exactly. So that is the connection that I see. That's a good way of putting it too, because it, it puts a more positive spin on right right that right. our stories are worth something because of it. So you don't go in and say, "I'm not going to advertise unless you write about my event." Right. I've never known a marketing person who did that. There's probably somebody out there who did, but I've never known anyone. But at a certain point, if over a year you find that your events are just totally neglected and you're looking at your advertising budget for the next year, that's the point at which you'll say, well, you don't think these things are important. I have to say that I've had to go into one of the newspapers in town and sit down with my, my client and she always advertised at this newspaper, and they were ignoring her, even though she does amazing work. So, um, yeah, sometimes you actually do have to, to set up a meeting with them in order to, to try to get more coverage. And obviously, you have to target your advertising dollars. Exactly. And you're going to make those decisions based upon how you think you can most efficiently reach the people that you want to reach. Exactly. And if those people, I mean, to take it one step further, if those people know that they're not going to learn about their events in that newspaper, Mm -hmm. they're not going to read it. Right, right. So putting the ad in there, it's it's too late. Right. They've already been discouraged. Exactly. The other thing I want to point out, too, is I've been doing surveys for a lot of different organizations around the country, and we're finding out that word of mouth is definitely the number one reason to get people to the audience. One of the second things that that actually is coming in a little bit more now is publicity. And an advertise, a typical advertisement is not doing as much as it used to. 
So the publicity actually I'm finding out is more important now than actually placing ads. That's what I'm finding from all of these surveys. So um, just want to put it out there. That's why the, having this conversation with Peter is, is so important because publicity is becoming more important, even more so than, than the marketing ads. Now, people do this all the time on, on talk shows. Can I plug a book? You certainly can, <laughs> definitely. We, we have a whole section of, of, of definitely. I don't, I don't have one here to hold up to the camera. But there's um, <laughs> uh, a, a faculty member at the, at the University of Colorado, a uh, man named Jeff Nitch, NYTCH. I love Jeff. He, he's uh, one of my favorite people in Yes, town. absolutely. And he wrote a book called The Entrepreneurial Muse. The Entrepreneurial Muse. Yes. And um, and Nitch is N-Y-T-C-H. And that, he's also a composer and his music is terrific. But um, Yes, it is. Yes, he, it is. This book was written as a, he's, he's head of the, of the Music Entrepreneurial Entrepreneurship Center, I think it's called, at, at yes. the College of Music. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so he's teaching students basic aspects of business using language that's very well known to business people and not very well known to arts uh, people. Things about long tail markets and those sorts of things. Right, right, um, right, right. Quite uh, interesting. Um, and um, I've actually done a couple workshops for him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, he, this, this book, I... I, I read it and wrote about it on, on my blog. So if you look, if you go to sharpsandflatirons.com and look up niche in the little search box, you will find this story about, about his book. Um, one of the questions I answered was, who should read this? Obviously, students coming out of school, starting a career, is who this basically aimed at because it's written for a course. But I think anyone who is in a musical career, anyone who is on a board of an artistic organization, anyone who is in the audience mm. of an artistic organization, if they want to understand what's going on better, um, could, could stand to read this book. But, but particularly boards in management of, of organizations. And um, you're talking about about people, word of mouth, and so forth. One of the interesting things in this book, which uh, relates directly to musical success in Boulder and what Longmont has to offer, <laughs> is a, a study. Studies have shown, an actual study was done, uh, where people were presented with tickets to a performance, invited to attend some, something once, and then they were followed up later, did they come back or not, and if they did not come back, why? I love that question. <laughs> the number one reason, this is only one study, but the number one reason they did not come back a second time was artistic excellence. No. Was it something they enjoyed? No. Parking. <laughs> I knew it was parking. It could have been bathrooms. It could have been something like that. That is definitely what I have experienced in, in surveys and, and reading about reports that the Americans for the Arts have done in the past. That yes, there are. I, I will admit that there are times that I have uh, been offered a complimentary ticket to performance in Boulder, and I end up not going because it's such a hassle. It is true. It is so true. I mean, particularly in, 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 in bad weather. I mean, that's. Boulder has its own particular problems with with uh, with parking and, and getting around town and anything close to campus and so forth. But um, and that's something that Longmont has. I, I point out to people they come up here to the Stewart Auditorium, which you've been kind enough to mention. <laughs> it has it has three things that no one facility in Boulder has. Mm. Um, it's, it's first of all, it's it's a beautiful small facility. It's, it's, it's a lovely, okay, there are the lovely spaces in Boulder, too, but it has adequate parking. It does. And it has a nice lobby. I love the lobby. You can do things in the lobby. You can, you can, yes. you can serve food, you can serve drinks, it's you, can serve, you can have receptions right. afterwards or before or whatever you want. They did it there right. There is no facility in Boulder that has those three things. You know what? I think you're right. First United Methodist but Church but is getting there. They're trying to do more. You're not going to serve alcohol in the lobby of the church. That's true. That is true with the store. And the, the thing that's cool about them is they have a concession stand. 
And this is something I just found. I wish I knew about this ahead of time or I would have promoted it. But they actually have a concession stand that you can buy, like, movie concession snacks um, and bring it in <laughs> while you're watching the performance or have a glass of wine. It is it is such a, a, a nice addition to the whole experience there. Right. But, but that's... So that's my little pitch for Stewart Auditorium. Oh, and, that's fun. But, but, but parking is important, and uh, then the other amenities are important. You, you mentioned um, bathrooms. I, I will tell a story from when I was at the University of Iowa. They, they opened a new auditorium there um, in the 1970s, uh, University of Iowa Hancher Auditorium, which is now in a beautiful new facility because the original one was flooded. And, and, uh, oh, dear. Okay. Yeah, a lot of damage done. And the lesson there is, if you're anywhere close to a floodplain, don't put all of your electricals in the basement. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that anyway. makes sense. <laughs> oh, no. So they, while I was there, this would have been about, um, oh, somewhere around 1990, 91, somewhere in there. So 20-plus years after it, it opened, mm -hmm. they did a renovation of, of the lobby. And one of the things that they did, and all the women in your audience will appreciate this, they took out, there, there was a coat check on each side of the room. Men's restroom was on one side, the women's restroom was on the other. They took out the coat check mm -hmm. completely out on the women's side. So they, um, they, they took out the coat check on the women's side and devoted all that space to women's restroom. Wow. Yay. More, than, more than double the space. And <laughs> when they had the reception for the opening, they actually um, had tours of the women's restroom. Oh, wow. That men and women were allowed to walk through and see all that they had done. <laughs> it's important, I believe was, it or not. It's, it is so important for audiences to have these amenities. Well, it is. It is. And if you go to a performance and you have to use the restroom at the intermission and you find there's a line and you can't get in there before the second half starts, mm -hmm. you're going to think twice about going back there, aren't you? That's true. That is true. Well, I want to end on, because um, we're we're actually needing to leave the nice room that we have here while we're <laughs> recording, on the question of who do I aim to serve with my work? Who is it really for? This was a question that you gave to me, uh -huh. and I love that question, So because that is audience about the audience. So who do you, who do you aim to serve, and who is it really for? Well, I, I write for the reader. I don't write for the performer. I don't write for the presenting organization. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really write for the composer. Now, all of those people are in, are hopefully, served by what I do. The organization benefits from being written about, of course, and reviews particularly, I think, are important. But I don't... I. I, I I'm careful to make sure I don't ever think of myself as an extension of any organization's PR or operation. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I can do with the preview is I can give the artist an opportunity to speak through me. Mm -hmm. and, and as much of this uh, story as, as I can get by with will be quotes. Right. I mean, I've had right. people call me up and say, oh, I love that article. And I'll say... Of course you did. 80% of it was you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which is an exaggeration. But, you know, the, the, the quotes is, I mean, that is a way of giving people a chance to speak for themselves. And that is, I do it because, you know, I, I love the art form, I love the artists, and I like helping them. But when I sit down to write, I'm not thinking about them. I'm thinking about the audience that's going to read this. I love that because that's and, all. That's and, and that's why my question is, what do you want the audience to know? And I, I will say one thing about, about reviews. My goal with a review is not to tell you whether the tenor sang flat or not. <laughs> um, it is to give the reader something they can bring with them the next time they go to a performance. If they don't get something like that out of a review, what's the point? Exactly. The, the performance is over. Exactly. It's already happened. Knowing, you know, what was good and what was bad about it is no help to anyone unless there's information in there. And, and that's why I like to focus on the kinds of decisions, the complications that people have to deal with, you know, those kinds of things. Because many of those things are the same 
across many, many performances, the kind of things that you that you struggle with. And there's challenges in every performance. Right. That is true. Yeah. I I think and those those are the stories that are gonna keep people interested in coming back because um well the music itself definitely. Well, but hopefully the performances, yes. Right. Yes. The performances, <laughs> but definitely knowing a little bit more about the people right. that, that are making up this performance. Well, I want to thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. I definitely want to have you back for another oh. time talking about something completely different, maybe, but <laughs> a couple of tangents went off here that we could talk about. And, um, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the ADS podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to, uh, to, to be part of your podcast. Wonderful. Michelle. Wonderful. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter. I certainly did. And if you have any questions, comments, feedback, you can email me at ads at buildmyaudience.com. And for all things audience development for the arts related, for services, I have a blog there. And of course, other podcast episodes head to buildmyaudience.com. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. 